Welcome to Adversarial Learning. Gods are the queen, the fascist regime, and made you a moron. Potential heights bomb. Yeah, well, welcome to the podcast. This is uh, Andrew again and Joel. Uh, Hello. Back. Today we have uh, our guest, Patter Coyle. Um, he, I met, I think he and I met when we both joined the data engineering Slack back, uh, several years ago, a few years ago. Uh, I am not sure what's happening in there, uh, these days, but it's good to have Patter on the, on the podcast. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and tell our listeners about uh, a little bit more? Okay, cool. Yeah. I, I do also wonder what happened to that data engineering Slack is how I met, quite a few people in Amer- in the US, North America, data science community. But um, I'm Peter Coyle. I'm an Irish data scientist. I'm an independent. Um, I'm based in London. I'm most known on the internet for contributing to PyMC3, which has been really cool. Um, I'm running an online course, which I might talk about a little bit later. And the other thing I want to talk about today is a little bit about the difference between data science in Europe and data science in North America, because I think oh, that's, yeah. that's quite an interesting topic. So um yeah that's i think me introduced all right so how 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 is data science in europe different from data science in north america see i don't know so so i've not worked in north america so i'm speculating based on like what i've talked to talking to people (laughs) in like uh uh you know places like shopify stripe etc i think the, the there's more VC money in the states so i think that like has like raised the game it feels like a bit of a like the my experience of dealing with US centric companies has been that US centric companies are more likely to go for an edge quicker than like like British or or like Belgian companies, right? So, but what do you mean an edge? Well, like an edge in like in terms of like sustainable competitive advantage, right? So, so like it, it, you know, often you'll have like conversations in 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 business meetings in Europe, which is like, oh, there's this thing called AI, and you have to sort of like go through this like journey of like you know like lego introduction to to ai there should be a coloring book or something right um and sort of like showing you know that it's not evil and terrifying and i think like so i think there's like kind of like yeah but we'll wait and see whereas in like with like kind of u.s companies like i spent some of my career as an intern at amazon it's like how do we get like one percent margin or how do you get like an extra percent and I wonder if that I have a speculation about this. So one of my speculations about this is that a lot of the kind of digital native companies in the US, um, like the kind of like the fangs, if you want to call them that, um, are kind of like still run by engineers or people of an engineering background. That could Whereas, be it. It could also be because we, you know, we we invented capitalism here in the states, and you guys are still working on socialism. I think, aren't you? Right, I'm not so going. I mean, I'm not going down that line. <laughs> oh, I that, I'm avoiding okay. that. I'm avoiding oh, politics with you, Joel. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I, you know, I, I've I've seen some some similar similar things in, in my work too. I mean, it seems to me that um, I had a theory when I when I was uh, starting with some consulting work about ten years ago that um, that innovation in tech started in. Seattle and San Francisco, and then it sort of jumped over to uh, New York, yeah. kind of back backfilled over into the Midwest of the states, and then jumped to financial centers over in in, in Europe, like um, London, Frankfurt, um, 
<clears throat> and then it sort of it sort of proliferated back over to um, to Asia. It, that that may have changed in the in the in the past few years. I mean, China is definitely. I think you're um, just making shit up, honestly. Yeah, I am. Right. But that was my perception. So that's my lived experience. And, you know, you have to respect I, it. I, I deny your live, lived experience. So <laughs> yeah. um, is Europe a, a Python continent or an R continent? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. You, you, you do definitely have, like, sub-communities. Like, the, in the Python community, and there's, like, a very successful PyData conferences. Um, oh. They're 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 pretty big over here. Like um, I've, I've been they have them here too, but it's yeah. really hard to get your talks accepted. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, have yeah. I've been one of those reviewers on the committee. I probably be one of the assholes saying no to, to you mm-hmm. or who knows. Um, uh, yeah. Um, there's still a lot of R in like um, insurance, like yeah. actuarial stuff. Um like and kind of like you know people coming from like a biological statistics background because you still have a, like a lot of kind of like research labs throughout you know like state funded research labs throughout yeah. Europe like in like to Switzerland uh you know the Netherlands etc which is where like a lot of people you run into who want to be want to be data scientists i don't mean that in a disparaging way but i probably do mm-hmm. um sort of like you know come from they sort of come from that that background okay um i I was gonna ask if you know i know the the eu likes you know mandating things do you think they'll mandate that you know europe is now a a a python (laughs) continent or europe is now a a r continent uh i love the way that americans think of the eu as this like evil like uh socialist there's a lot of mandates just a lot of mandates we we think of all governments that way okay okay not just the eu Okay, it's it's good to see that. It's good to see that or, you're consistent. I mean, yeah, another question would be: Would they mandate people move to Python three, or would they would they mandate that they stay on two six or two seven because of backwards compatibility? Oh, that's a good question. Right. I mean, I, you know, I've, that's I've a good never thing thought of mandates in software. Like, how do you how do you implement a mandate in software? Well, I like mean, think think of like GDPR, right? That's a mandate. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's uh, that did look like it was written by experts on technology. Yeah. Every time I look for that one, <laughs> yeah. Does that does that affect you a lot? Yeah, that comes up yeah. a lot. Um, yeah, so you're seeing a lot more tools. You see, like a lot more. Um, oh, to automate and, and audit and stuff. Yeah, yeah, like a lot. Yeah, so yeah, I, I can't think of many examples. Like you look at something like Snowplow Analytics, which is like yeah. a like a kind of segment.com competitor. They'll not like me saying that either. Um, they were like, we got there first. Like a lot of their kind of like recent product releases have been like about anonymization and pseudo anonymization. Oh, cool. That's good. Uh, which is useful. Yeah. In, sure. in general. Um, oh, I, I was going to, I was going to say, what do you think about this line of thought that I've seen recently? And I saw before that too, that basically um, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world are going to have a real easy time with the GDPR compliance and the startups of the world are not. And that basically, I think the tweet I saw the other day said that if you are a, a startup um, working with, you know, any kind of customer data, you'd be stupid to try and launch in the EU period. What's the reason? It's because they have the infrastructure and the setup already. Uh, well, for, for any kind of compliance, if you have, you know, 
hundreds of lawyers working for you already and lots of policies and you know the politicians, it's much easier to be in compliance than if you're yeah. a scrappy startup who has to, you know, pay 1% of your runway every time you talk to a lawyer. Yep, that's interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, like Stratechery, you know, the blog from uh, Ben Thompson, which I'm a huge fan of, um, talks about that, like the problem of regulation, uh, like sort of like rewarding incumbents. Um, I, I, I've I, not thought about this in enough depth, but I've had conversations with people at meetups and stuff where they've kind of said GDPR is a pain, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's adding a lot of like, risk and stuff so maybe you'll maybe you'll see less kind of companies in that but if you look at like like um like a lot of like the success stories from like europe like like likes of klarna etc um or izettle have been like kind of in like com- you know financial compliance areas anyway they've not been like facebook's or google right mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's, uh, you can argue that's, you know, like risk aversion or whatever, or, or you can argue that's like you know, different amounts of capital or, or whatever, but that seems to be, you know, just how things have sort of gone, you know, somewhere like, tra- you know, someone like transfer wise as well, who's probably a unicorn by now, you know, London based. Um, there's not really like Facebook, Googles that seem to come out of Europe. I, and that's, a, you know, an interesting observation in itself. That's um, because we invented capitalism. I'm telling you. Is, is that is that why? Once again, <laughs> well, why, why are Europeans so weird about cookies? Like, if you ever go to Europe, uh, like every website gives you a stupid pop up that's like, "By the way, we offer cookies." So like, originally, yes, when you said cookies, I was like, "What are you talking about? Like the things you eat?" Um, but um, but it, uh, it seems like every website has that now. Does because it? they do business in Europe. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I go to I go to websites that I know are hosted here. And I feel like when I was in Brussels in November, it, surfing the web felt different because I got a lot more of those. But I could be it's like wrong. twice the clicks for for the same amount of results. <laughs> <clears throat> Interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I guess that's um, yeah. The whole cookie law was uh, whatever whatever the official title of that law is was like an EU thing. But then what happens is that we all end up, you know, we converge towards a worldwide compliance, right? Because okay, so many, you know, GDPR has already been talked about being copied in Canada and Australia, if I remember correctly. Because, uh, you know, it, well, they're kind of like Europe. They're still kind of like Europe. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, <laughs> aren't they in, I mean, aren't they a part of the, aren't they a part of England? Aren't they a part of England? No, they're they they might be no. a dominion in the Commonwealth. That's not part That's of England, it. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, That's very like, different, they're like, man. They're like they're like Virginia in the in the states. Why is Virginia a Commonwealth? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah. okay. That doesn't, that doesn't mean uh, anything though. <laughs> Just like in the name, it doesn't mean anything. Um, it now it's funny the the GDPR stuff is like so poorly done. When I was in Hawaii a few weeks ago, there were a couple websites I tried to visit. They're like, sorry, because of GDPR, it's not That's available right. in your country. I'm like, I'm in Hawaii. It's part of the U.S. Wow. But um, so, uh, what what do you think about Brexit? Ah, uh, that question. Um, uh, we, we don't well, very often have guests uh, on the show who can talk about Brexit. We don't even know okay. what it is. We just we just like saying the name. You just like saying the name Brexit. Um, uh, uh, well, I voted Remain. If that's what you're okay. asking, um, I wasn't. Just, that, just, that, just, that's just, yeah, just 
interested in, yeah, <laughs> in what it means and everything. Um, what does it mean just, for data science? That's a good what, point. Oh. What does it mean for data science? I guess practically some of the risks, depending on what deal is done, however this is going to end up. The question is like, you know, will British companies be able to have .eu domains? Uh, and, and and even questions like kind of like, you know, where you store your data? Do you need to store your data in like a UK-based um, data also, center and stuff? I mean, also for recruiting, I would imagine. Like, you, you know, there are a lot of people from Germany and other countries that are working in London. Yep. And if yeah, if if Brexit leaves the EU, then they, they'll need to go home and get visas, right? Yeah, and that's still not clear. So, yeah, yeah. like the the general feeling, you know, I don't know how well this is supported by like quantitative data, is that like you <laughs> know, uh, uh, like if you're a Spanish mobile developer, why would you move to London? Right. And you know, why would you you know now? In Europe, London still has like higher amounts of venture capital than like than Berlin. I think it's like quite so still quite significantly higher. And Berlin's like number two in Europe. Um, and you know, obviously now London's not in Europe anymore. So why am I talking like this? Um, uh, but um, uh, but um, you know, and and still has that kind of like lock in effect. So like, there's still like quite a lot of like arguments made that like you know. If you're if you want to be in Europe, um, London is still like you know the closest thing you have to New York and San Francisco yeah. in terms of like tech jobs. In terms of uh, is it the case know, that uh, you know you hear this that data scientists and software engineers over in you know both London and and the main continent uh, get paid a lot less than they do in the U.S. Is that true? Uh, give me figures uh, like what what does a developer get in like. I'm trying to think like for like. Oh, um, right. So, so I would expect that in that like an introductory level data scientist, and I'm making up numbers now, and people are going to yell at me because I'm totally right. wrong. But I would guess that like an intro level data scientist in the U.S. would be making you know somewhere like seventy five to ninety k U.S. dollars. That's on right, Andrew. That's about that's in line with what I would expect too. I know right. that there are there would be there are exceptions, and I've you know there are certain companies that are willing to spend. Almost double that, and and a, and a more senior person, you'd be looking at more like you know right. one fifty to two hundred range, I would think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so an entry level data science. I'm like trying to base this on some sort of fact, but um, entry level data scientist in London, probably talking about forty k uh, sterling, which works out about fifty three k US dollars. So what was the figure you quoted? Seventy five. I said seventy five to ninety. Right. Yeah. But, again, but, do I made that get, up. but but do you get free healthcare and free college and free? We well, don't get free college. Not not in the UK. You pay tuition fees. What about free beers? You don't get free beers either. You do get ah, free healthcare. Okay. Uh, um, seventy uh, senior data scientist in London gets about 70k to 85 I guess so that works out about 92k US dollars um, but, the, in the, but the real estate and rent in London is crazy expensive from what I understand same in yeah. SF right well it's not as expensive as SF um, okay. I don't know what it'd be similar Nothing to is. yeah yeah I feel like I feel like London was more expensive than Seattle last time I checked for houses, for for flats and apartments, 
Oh, sorry for yeah. Sorry, I said houses. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, for houses too. Sure. I mean, I yeah. I didn't I didn't know anybody trying to buy a house because those. Were <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I said houses. I meant apartments or flats. Um, ah, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Strange stuff of the tongue. Um, yeah, I need to look that up um, and figure that one out. I, I'm sure that's like someone's worked that one out, right? That's but there are tangibles to to living in London. I mean, you know, my my wife. It's her favorite city in the whole world, and I'm it's slowly growing on me. But I, I understand that there's a. Is there's it because of the buses and the queen? She just she loved everything about London. I swear to God, she loved the she loved the tube. She loved uh, all of the neighborhoods. She had great friends there, and I maybe I don't I didn't like London because every time I went there, I just was in a hotel in the city, uh, you know, walking two blocks to the office and then flying home. So maybe I didn't experience London the right way. I've never been to London. Yeah, you should I'm come sure around. Right? <laughs> uh, I should, but there's a lot of places I I, I should go. Um, yeah, but I, I don't. So so in uh, in Europe, how do people get into data science? Do they do uh, boot camps or they yeah. study something academic and then they say, you know what, academia is not for me. I'll be a data scientist. Or they're software engineers who say, I want to be a data scientist. So then they try and switch. Or or what? What's the path there? I guess it's pretty similar to. Uh, like we're seeing a lot more boot camps. There's loads in London. Uh, there's mm-hmm. Flatiron, oh. General Assembly. Um, uh, I have mixed feelings about boot camps. I think they kind of sell a dream, and it's very difficult to teach a lot of hands-on skills in three months. Right? Mm-hmm. It's very difficult if you don't have the foundation. In fact, I taught at a boot camp once, and the, my best students were the people with like economics or physics degrees right they had the kind of like hands it had some sort of like foundation they already understand matrices and vectors right yeah like i mean it's very difficult to explain matrices and and vectors right but like if you already have the concept in your head it's just a lot easier um i guess like a couple of years ago a lot of people came from academia right that's kind of what i did i was like screw this i'm not doing a phd why would i do this how do i earn a living i can write code What's data science? Jeff Haberash or whatever he's called made it up. DJ Patel, um, and uh, and that sort of like that that kind of wave happened, you know, because uh, I left college in about 2012. So like I sort of like was just saw that kind of like wave happen since then, um, and the whole hype train still hasn't quite calmed down yet, which is a little bit irritating. But I know it's funny. I was uh, I was telling this story just this morning that. Um, in two, so I've actually only uh, ever had one job where my title was data scientist, um, right? And I got that job in 2011. Um, okay. And I was the second employee at the company, and my job interview to be a data scientist was literally the CEO printed out a SQL query and showed it to me and said, "Do you understand this?" <laughs> and I and I said yes, and then he hired me. Um, <laughs> and so like, it's hilarious when you hear about how data science hiring works today. Yep. Yeah, it's got a lot more like so Vicky Boykis wrote a good um blog post about this recently, like kind of like state she's, of she's been on the podcast. Yeah, she she's an awesome person. I'm a big fan. Um uh yeah, I heard, I listened to her on this podcast. Um cool. and she said uh you know, talked about like how the hiring process and how like you know it's it's definitely got like harder, right? You know, I'm I'm pretty sure when I started out it was pretty similar to what you were saying, like there's SQL a lot queries. More gatekeeping now. Yeah. Yeah. But, 
the second half of that story is that in 2012, a year later, I decided I wanted to hire an entry-level data scientist. And the job <laughs> description was literally, you should be smart and understand mathematics, no experience required. And I had the hardest time finding people to apply. Oh, like, that's great. I know. Now, if you like put something like that out there, you'd get like a thousand applications in the first day. Yeah. Well, why is that? Is that because like there's more people coming from boot camps and there's like more people kind of like graduating from with machine learning, you know, courses. Yeah. And there's also like it's seen as like you know a high value job as such in terms of like income, like uh, yeah. expectation, right? Yeah. You know. That's sort of like all caught up. Um, but I mean, we are like in a very exciting time when you think about it. Like machine learning is like, and applied statistics are one of like the few technological revolutions I can think of that like affect like every single vertical, right? You yeah, know, I, it's, there's I, a I, lot of fun stuff to do. It's, it's, it's yeah. really fun. It's still fun. I mean, yeah, I would say it's getting, you know, there, there was like a tool explosion in the past seven years or so. Uh, there's so many things that make your life easier um, you know, there's, there's a lot more to, more to do, but I, I, I got no complaints. I got complaints. What do you mean you got I mean, no complaints? Every episode is you complaining about something or another. I got no complaints. What kind of bullshit is that? <laughs> right, right. So, so, so what love, is your middle name? I love everything. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, listen, it beats, um, what does it beat? It beats, Cole, yeah, uh, no, I, I mean, uh, that, that's, that's one of my jokes is that like, you know, d- data science, like you know beats the alternatives like digging coal or whatever mm-hmm. i actually yeah i prefer but who does that these days like oh people like, in west virginia there's like 36 okay. people in in the country that do it 36 yeah did you just make that number up or yeah oh, okay of course. of course he's a data scientist it's a, it's a yeah. very small it's a very small number yeah and it, it if you look it up it's a very small percentage but it, it um it's something that politicians love to pander to yeah, yeah, that's kind of like a um, oh, there's a uh, the the Economist magazine had a whole uh, like notion of like never insult something that's in a children's book politically. So like never insult a farmer, a fireman, a nurse. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, well, like Richard's. Co- yeah, Richard's never, company but, rule. Right. Never insult a pigeon driving a bus. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you shouldn't because the pigeon's clearly very clever, right? You know, oh, yeah. Not many. I, I read all those books. He's he's extremely clever. I love yeah. that guy. He, well, the reason there's no so few coal miners, and there used to be more, is that they've automated themselves out of jobs. You know, so did the coal miners do that, or did like well, some engineers the, do that? The industry of coal mining, you know, yeah, automated a lot of the process. So, here's a question. When are you gonna? When are we gonna automate ourselves out of jobs? Data science. Yeah. See, I can't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, the coal miners didn't either. Yeah, true. Coal mining did have like a good hundred years, though, right? Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> the way things are going. So, so I, I would, I would split that into a couple pieces um, yeah. because there's a lot of different things that are called data science, right? Right. Some people who are data scientists are basically just building dashboards, um, and I think that could be automated sooner rather than later. Um, but, you know, some people what? are designing experiments and, you know, figuring out clever models and clever tricks and looking for, you know, weird stuff in the data. And I think things like that will be a lot harder to automate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, and the whole like looking at your data and like having like domain knowledge, like it amazes me how long, long it takes to acquire that, right? But, you know, yeah. the sort of tricks you pick up, like, you know, looking for nodes, you know, looking for like weird things in various columns, look, you know, expecting anomalies, you know, like looking at ages and plotting them and seeing like, are they realistic? Do they represent the, the demographics you're looking at? All these kind of things you kind of pick up, which are, is actually like quite a lot of work, right? You know, the, the whole like, sometimes they're like, why can't I just push the button and this kind of stuff's done and I can like get on with the, the fun stuff. But that's like a very naive impression of what like data science is. You know, there's so much, that, a lot of the value is in the data cleaning, right? I think we neglect that and a lot, that's definitely something I noticed with junior data scientists that they all think it's like about shiny models when that's really a small percentage of it. And I've heard, really the, I've, heard junior, I've heard junior data scientists think it's all about generated generated uh, faces and you know image recognition. That's all all you ever do. Yeah, how often do you do that? Probably is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm actually. Working- I, I think I. I think I said this last time. I'm a I'm a domain expertise skeptic. Mm-hmm. Why think, is that? Uh, I think the kind of domain expertise that a data scientist typically needs um, can be picked up very quickly. Um, I've I'll done data. Yeah, I've I done, agree with you. Well, I've done data science roles in like. Uh, uh, so I worked at an online travel site. Yeah. Um, so that required domain expertise about the travel industry. Then I worked at a consumer electronic shopping site that required domain expertise about electronic shopping. Then I worked at a collaboration uh, analytics company. So that required domain expertise about emails and calendar items. And, you know, for none of those did I have that expertise when I started working there. Um, I picked it up on the job. And um, uh, not only that, I mean, you you work with people who already work there and, and they, you can ask them questions about it, right? Yeah, I yeah. just think that for most, and this isn't like totally the case, like, you know, um, if you're doing some kind of like precision medicine, you probably need a lot more expertise you can pick up in a month. But, you know, if you're optimizing ads or, you know, selling widgets or recommending movies or whatever, I feel like that's the kind of domain expertise that you can pick up on the job. Um, I agree. Honest. I mean, I think it's, it's similar to, um, you know, the role of inside sales where, you can get a job at, at one company that's selling sofas and you should be able to be able, you know, to get up to speed and, and know enough to say things about sofas that make people buy them. Well, those, those guys don't know anything about sofas. They're just reading from a script. It's true. They're, they're yeah, like, but, but there's, but there's enough, I mean, but, but it's, you know, it's a similar thing where there's a script that you can learn and it's similar with, with the domain knowledge that you need to, to pull data together and, and do models. You need to know like, well, what's that field mean? Okay. It means this. It's it's a little harder maybe to, to become a data scientist, but my point is that you can plug yourself in as a salesperson just like you can doing data science. I, I guess a little bit what I'm saying is that like, um, let's say you run an online travel site and you have two data science candidates and one has really strong data science fundamentals and doesn't know much about the travel industry and yeah. one knows a lot about the travel industry but has weaker data science fundamentals. Like yep. I'm probably going to hire the one who has the strong fundamentals and doesn't know shit about travel. But Me too. Um, yep. That's, that, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming data. from. But. Yeah, but a lot of a lot of problems are similar, right? Churn, customer churn is the same in any vertical, you know, like 
the, the your definition of churn is different, right? But yep. um, depending every on every company has a call center that takes transcripts of the, the yeah. calls. You should be able to do some NLP and figure out why people are mad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why people are mad or why people are happy, depending on what companies oh. you work for, man. <laughs> That's um, true. Yeah. But uh, yeah, or, you know, it's just kind of the standard. Yeah. So that's like, I don't know, business acumen or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I I don't know how one acquires that other than like just being curious in the job and actually like caring enough to understand it, you know, to pick up, you know, some commercial acumen. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think that's necessarily overly difficult. Yeah. So, yeah. So why do we use domain knowledge as a phrase then? We use this all the time in the industry. Oh, because so I'll, blog- tell you, I'll tell you why. Why? Because um, of Drew Conway. Drew Conway. Diagram about it. Yeah. Because <laughs> Drew Conway drew a Venn diagram, and one of the three circles was domain expertise, and um, right. it became part of the part of our collective uh, consciousness. We should get him on here next and ask him about that. He's he he does important things these days. Oh, that's true. Didn't he just sell his company? Um, I think he, I think he did. Either they merged or or, or it got yeah. acquired. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. He drew the the diagram. I guess that was one of the first things to appear as like a framework, because you got a lot of people running around like kind of running departments. Something I've seen a complete anti pattern is random business person with no real knowledge of like tech uh, comes from like an innovation background, decides to run a data science team. They generally called as something like big data analytics. And they would often be like analytics center of excellence. And they just sort of like ran around for a couple of years. Wow. Like hiring badly and not really delivering anything and complete waste of time. I like the sound of center of excellence though. I bet you do. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like we've worked at the same places. (laughs) (laughs) I've never Uh, worked at a center of excellence, but. Oh uh, man, uh, I have. Except insofar as everywhere becomes a center of excellence once I work there. That's right. You never worked anywhere that was called a center of excellence. If you have to call it a center of excellence, that's, that means something. Right. Yeah, it's like having an innovation department. You know what's department. excellent or you put it in the title. Yep. <laughs> so uh, so switching, switching gears, uh, you wanted to talk about PyMC3. So tell us about PyMC3. Um, yeah, right. So PyMC3 is coming to the end of its life as such um so okay for those of you who don't know pymc3 is an awesome library for doing basic statistics in python um uh and we have like nearly five thousand stars on github and nearly 200 contributors and it's quite a lot of work's been done over the last couple of years who's who's the most and famous be- person who's uh who started uh chris fonesbeck uh probably is our benevolent dictator for life uh thomas vecchi is also a very active contributor but there's a there's a couple of other people as well uh colin carl austin rockford um oh, we know austin you know austin yeah austin's mm-hmm. a cool guy he blocked me uh, on twitter um, i don't know why sorry i said he blocked me on twitter i don't know why okay uh you probably said something offensive <laughs> It's not related, but uh, he blocked me on Twitter, and I don't know why. But like every once in a while, someone will you know retweet him into my feed. But Twitter does a stupid thing where when someone gets retweeted into your feed, but they've blocked you, you just get this little the tweet is not available. And so you're like, is it the case that they blocked me, or is it the case that um, 
They deleted it. They deleted it, or is the case of Twitter is just like shitting the bed, basically. And then you click mm-hmm. through and it says this person has blocked you. So, uh, but, it, but it doesn't tell you why they blocked you. So it's a, it's a mystery to me, but that's okay. I'm not, I'm not for everyone. <laughs> that's, that's, that's certainly true. Um, <laughs> um, can't argue with that. Um, and um, and Theano's um, been discontinued. So, um, so we're kind of like, we're moving to TensorFlow for our next version. Um, and we've been, uh, uh, we had like a meeting at Google before Christmas, which was very interesting. Nice to meet people that you worked open source work for a couple of years face to face. Some of them, it was the first time I ever met them face to face, and um, and yeah, that's kind of like the the gen- the general roadmap is what we're what the general aim and advantage of of TensorFlow uh, kind of building things on TensorFlow is you get to take advantage of a lot of the innovations that like Google has produced, right? So. You know, will be production will be easier. You know, some of the algorithms are kind of like built in by you know into the kind of like code base, so you kind of like can depend on it as like a as an up you know as an app like an API layer, rather than like coding mm-hmm. various algorithms yourself. And also a lot of like mm-hmm. you know, there's been various like theoretical improvements in Bayesian statistics in the past like five years, and you know particularly things like variational inference, which is for large scale data problems, um, whenever you like, uh, and that's kind of like being, there's been a lot of innovations there. And a lot of that kind of stuff is based, baked into uh, TensorFlow and another library called TensorFlow Probability. So that's that's pretty exciting. Um, I haven't had much time to touch it, unfortunately, but it seems to be coming along. Cool. So if I'm someone who's never used PyMC3, and to be clear, I'm someone who's never used PyMC3, what's the sort <laughs> of project that I might be doing? What, what, well, well that, that's kind of the, the, that's the genesis of this question. What's the sort of, sort of project <laughs> that I might be doing where you would say, hey, you should, use, you should try PyMC3 for this? Because like, like right now, yeah. it's not really on my radar, so it would never occur to me to use it, uh, which is the reason I've never used it. But like, what's a, what's a situation where it should be occurring to me to use it? Okay. So anywhere that you have like um like like anywhere you have like I know you don't like the phrase domain knowledge, but you can sort of like ask an expert something about a particular phenomenon. That, you know, can be a useful frame. Um what I think is like one of the most exciting things about uh, Bayesian analysis and the, tri- the the kind of tools I've used a lot for has been like when you have lots and lots of like small data, right? So I'll make that more concrete. In e-commerce, for example, you'll often have like categories. You'll often have like you want to model something like sales, but but you'll have categories and subcategories, right? And these categories and subcategories have like a hierarchical structure. That's what's called. Um, and for those sort of things, that's really useful. And that's like this can apply to pretty much anything. I've I've applied it in insurance, where you had a lot of pricing information for, say, one kind of uh, risk that you were trying to price but you didn't know much about another one, but you could use some of the general characteristics like, uh, you know, like the kind of like, like, uh, like uh, higher categories, if that makes sense. So you might know that everything is from commercial insurance and could use some sort of that information to infer things. uh, Can can you like dumb it down for me even further? Like, like what's a, what's a, what's a, what's a a very small problem that I might want to use? Um, use this on like a, a toy problem that would make sense 
toy problem that makes sense. Do you do a lot of A-B testing? That could be like a nice toy problem to play around with it on. Um, if you don't, you don't like that one. Um, what kind of problems do you work on? Like, if you give me some sort of problems that you work but on, I can try. For, forget about me. Like, like you're you're given a pitch. Like, here's why right. PyMC three is awesome. And you're talking to a room of data scientists and say, I want to give you like a really simple example of why this is great. But I want to give you like a soup to nuts example. Um, so you can't just say, oh, you know, when you're doing insurance, because people don't know when they're doing insurance. And yeah, like, like what's the, you know the what's the hello world of of using PyMC three? Um that shows this is why it's great. This is what you can do with it that you couldn't do without it. It might be a hard question because I was just looking at the site. I mean, there's just tons and tons of stuff in there. Yeah. Um, but, 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 and so let me tell you where I'm coming from is that um, I, I can, you know, I can tell you a story about the difference between say Bayesian and frequentist analysis and priors and yeah. how to get distributions and blah, blah, blah. And I can talk about that stuff till I'm blue in the face. And, um, but I've never actually used any of that stuff in in real life, um, and, and so I wouldn't even know how to get started using that stuff in real life, or to say here's a problem where that kind of stuff would be um, useful to apply. So for someone like me who kind of I understand the math, um, but I wouldn't even know where to get started. Where do I get started? You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to ask. I think a good example is to run it on A/B testing, right? And like and and get your uncertainty, and 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 run an A/B test in a traditional frequentist way, right? And then run it in a in a Bayesian way and compare the results. And the biggest okay, thing you're so, going to get out of that is sorry, go on. You're going oh, to I was going to say, oh, like I, I just want to drill down. Okay, so I want to run an A/B test. Let's say I have two different advertisements for the adversarial learning podcast, um, yep. and one and one of them says. Uh, listen to the podcast because Joel is, is fantastic. And one says, listen to the podcast because Andrew is fantastic. Um, and now I'm going to randomly show one of the two ads to people and, and track whether they, you know, click through, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's my AB test. Um, so, you know, in a frequentist setting, I would count how many people click on each and I would, um, you know, do some kind of uh, test you know, with a letter of the alphabet, maybe like a T test or a something test. I don't know. I haven't done statistics in a long time. And, uh, you know, draw some conclusion. But if I were using PyMC3, what would I do differently? You would do some of the similar things, but what you get out for free is you get uncertainty about that. So rather than just telling you, to so a traditional A-B test, you'll say A is better than B. But you won't say how big that effect is or how big that uncertainty of that difference is, right? And that's right. that's useful, right? That's useful because you can turn that into like a loss function, right? For instance, and that loss function you could uh, you could use for like understanding money, right? Because it might be, for instance, like it might be, for instance, that you have an asymmetry that you care more about the upside of of you know. Or th than the downside, if that makes sense. Right, but so my understanding of of doing Bayesian things is that um, I start with some sort of prior, right? So maybe yeah. I come in and I say, you know what, my belief is that the Joel ads are going to be more effective because more people want to hear Joel than want to hear Andrew. Um, yeah. And so now I put a number on that, and that number is the starting point for my analysis and outcomes. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. 
And yeah, so I, I completely left priors out of this. I just focused on the analysis side. But yeah, if you knew something about, like you could take, for example, as your prior previous results, like the kind of like the the distribution of previous results and use that to inform your prior, you might know that it's particularly skewed. You know, it might know that it looks a bit like a gamma distribution or you know, I'm speculating here. So, uh, so basically, I tell PyMC3, here's what I think the prior is. Now, here's the data. Now, you tell me what the posterior is, and then yep. I do my analysis based on that. Yep, that's that's exactly that's the the magic of it, really. It's not so that that's, uh, well. You say it's not that complicated, but that's like that's a big step up in cognitive load from like plug four numbers in and I'll spit out a, a test statistic, right? Yeah. So that that's a thing, right? So I think, I, I, right? So I've had a lot of conversations about this, and um, and it's still forming my view. But I think that like most analysis, most data science and analysis will not be Bayesian analysis because it's by using more complicated models, you need to justify them in terms of like the time to build them, the time to interpret them. And you need to like have a situation where it's worth it, right? Um, like that could be like in finance or insurance when you have a lot of money at stake. That could be in like kind of like an A/B testing environment where you know where it's worth kind of putting it in. Um, but like if you're like you know just getting started as a first data scientist at a startup and you don't have a, a reason to use it, you'll probably use, you know, a more traditional, you know, you'll probably use sums and counts first, right? Mm -hmm. And then you'll move to something like a linear regression, a logistic regression, and then you might do like a random force. And that might be enough for you, right? Because the reality is that most of our work is like doing engineering, pulling together frameworks that already exist, delivering results. And it's only if you're in a scenario where it's, you know, where the added... It's only when you're in a scenario where the added uncertainty can tell you can make you do something, right? So it's all well and good. It's like saying, you know, you know, sometimes A is better than B is enough, but A is better to B by ten percent plus or minus, you know, five uh, percent is 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 worth it when you have like a large amount of money, you know, and that's why you see a lot of like you know a lot of the people using PyMC three like likes a Contopian who like runs you know trading algorithms on their platform, insurance firms, the likes of you know uh, Uber, Google, SpaceX, etc. The kind of places where uh, where you you know you have you know a need to like you know manage your risk better, right? And you don't always have that, right? So I'm not like saying Bayesian stuff solves all the problems, but I'm like an advocate of it as I think we need to think about different tools and having different sets of tools in your box, you know, it, you know, in your mental toolbox is worth it. Right. You know, so how do you, how do you, how do you sell this paradigm to someone who's coming out of a boot camp and, you know, knows how to use scikit-learn and that's about it. Um, well, in my course, I, I, I have an online course called probabilistic programming primer. I kind of answer that question. Um, but you know, it, it's more aimed at like people with a bit further along. I think people just out of a boot camp is they're they're learning enough. Like it's it's like a year or two down the line, I think, for them. Okay, tell tell us about your course. Um, yeah, you have a boot camp, right? Sorry, I give it. I give a boot camp. You have 
you have a boot camp or is it more of a different kind of course? I have like an online course, which I host on Podia, um, which is one of these online uh, learning platforms. Uh, Where do you find it? Sorry? Where is it located so our listeners can find oh, it? Oh, um, www.probabilisticprogrammingprimer.com. Is it primer or primer? Uh, I think it's pronounced primer, but I don't know. Probabilistic primer? Probabilistic programming primer. I can like send it to you in this. Uh, is there a chat function? Yeah, there is. Yeah. There is. Yeah. There you are. Yeah, I need a shorter URL. It's too many words. It should be www.ppp. Yeah. I need to like see if that's used up or not. Um, sorry, where were we? You were asking like, how do you find I think in US it's primer, but in, in UK it's primer, and that feels backwards. Uh, Usually you'd think that like UK would be primer and US would be primer, but anyway. Yeah, I've, I've not thought about the difference of pronunciation of primer and primer too often, uh, and yeah, I'm not going to start now. Um, yeah, so tell us about the course. Okay, how, okay. Um, how how uh, long is it? How long is it? It's about five hours of, uh, of of screencasts and quizzes and stuff like this. I take you through um, how to do A-B tests. I take you through like modeling if, if self-driving cars are safe or not. That, that, that's a fun one. Um, I'm, not getting in, I'm not getting in one. I'll put it that way. Um, uh, uh, I, if you've I, never ridden with me, you might feel differently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh uh like kind of like sports analytics stuff which is a good application um and uh you know kind of like the basics how to use theano how to debug models you know how to like compare it to like you know like a, a logistic regression model that you might be used to and like more like kind of advanced examples like applying it to like supply chain modeling for instance, which awesome. is like pretty good, uh, which is like at the interface of like op- optimization and Bayesian statistics, which I think is a really useful application in the real world because often you'll have a loss function that you need to like optimize and that informs like how you allocate capital. So that's like a good use of it. So yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of my pitch at the moment. Uh, um, yeah, and the reason I put it together was um, I was doing like a lot of like talks about it. Like I've done a lot of talks about PyMC three over the last couple of years. Um, I just didn't have the bandwidth to do like lots of in person tutorials. And I thought I would try to put it on the internet. That taught me a lot about like shipping a product, advertising a product. Google and Facebook ads are tremendously complicated and expensive. Uh, mm. You know things like SEO. Um, and yeah, I think it's something that like a lot of people should do, right? So I recommend if you've got a niche, if you've got an interest, like the, you know, the data science community always has stuff that like it wants to learn and that people want to teach. So I, I, I recommend that. How much work did it take to put together the course? How much work? Um, like in terms of full-time days about somewhere between two and three weeks and then probably another week. That's all, that's yeah, no. yeah. I had the content written before, though, so I don't know how long it took me to write the content. So uh, I haven't figured that one out. A lot less work than writing a book. Yeah, yeah. I got asked to write a 
been asked to write a book a few times, and uh, I don't think it's worth it. I know. Um, me too. Oh, I, 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 I get a LinkedIn message from someone at Pact like every two weeks asking if I'll write some random book, and I, yeah, I, I've who, been who thinking are, about like adding it to my LinkedIn headline. Not interested in writing a book for Pact. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, who are Andrew, how's your, Andrew, how's your book going? It's good. It's really good. Yeah, it's. Uh, What's your book really on, Andrew, man? <laughs> yeah, the, the title is Real World Data Science with Python. What does that mean? So, so, so in uh, when I it's met Andrew, which was in uh, when do we meet? Like 2014, 2013, 2014. Sounds, when Andrew and I met in 2014, um, no, 2013 probably. Um, yeah. We were both writing books on data science. Um, mine came out in 2015, which was what four years ago. Andrew's still working on his. Who's counting? I mean, that's really. the joke. Who's counting? Me, because I. Um, you got five I, years on me. That's all. I, I, I always tell that story. Like I'm the only person um, who's like dumb enough to take my O'Reilly deadline seriously. People <laughs> are like, "Oh, they must be pretty hard ass about deadlines, right?" I was like, "Actually, let me tell you another story." So, um, but yeah. What are O'Reilly yeah, not hard to write deadlines? Clearly not. If Andrew's four years behind schedule. <laughs> Do you still have like a book deal, or like is have they given up hope? I think it's it still exists in PDF format, and I don't, I don't, I haven't heard that it's changed. It's still yeah. There. Do you still have an editor? I probably have another editor. I mean, I've had five editors so far. Wow, that's a lot of editors. It's epic. Yeah, that's it's, what happens when it takes you seven years to write your book. Hey, easy. <laughs> <laughs> I had three editors in the first year, so. I had, yeah, that's that's fair enough. So, so how many pages do you have left of your book? It's all outlined. It just has to be. Just a, it's a simple matter of writing it down. That's no big deal. <laughs> what does this all outline mean? Does it mean that you have like a one-page thing with a couple of notes? Like I have to write I don't this. Oh, it's a lot of yellow legal paper with, uh, with yeah. the outline on. It's got chapter it's titles. <laughs> it's chapter titles. <laughs> You know the hard. Here's the hard part. The hard part is uh, is building up reasonable synthetic or publicly available data sets that are going to be useful. That's all. Yeah, that's the hard part. That's true. There's yeah. so many out there. You can just like steal them. I know. That's where we got bogged down, but uh, you know, then life got in the way. But yeah, I know. yeah, it's uh, it's going great. It's it's actually couldn't be, couldn't be better. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Fantastic. Okay, is, so, it, is it is it lucrative to teach a course like that? Um, Looks like it. it. It's made some money, yeah. Um, I'm not going to say how much. I'm not oh, on a okay. podcast, um, but uh, it's made more money than I expected, actually. So, uh, well, well above break even. So it's. Um, what? So how much does the course cost to take? The course, the course is two hundred uh, pounds. I don't know what that is in US dollars. Um, the US three fifty, probably three fifty or so. No, there's no way the exchange rate can't be that high. Two six five, two hundred sixty five US dollars. Oh, it's even now, huh? Yeah, I, I think it's much closer. To, it used to be like two to one. Now it's I think much closer to one to one. But I don't, I don't keep super yeah. close tabs. Is it probably because of Brexit, right? I used to. Uh, so it's funny when I. It's a longer term trend. When I was, uh, um, in my misguided youth, I worked at a hedge fund. Um, and in particular, I worked. I hated it. 
Um, okay. And I, I worked on uh, foreign exchange trading, basically. So I used to know all these currencies and currency options and shit like that. It was, it was the worst. I, like, I hated Forex. it. I hated it so much. I had, like... I did like go to the doctor because I was like so stressed that I, um, that I was like in pain from stress. Holy moly! Yeah, it was but no that doesn't sound very good. Don't do fintech, is, is guys. It, is a lesson from this podcast to not write a book for seven years and don't work for a hedge fund? Are these um, the take home points? Those are two of the lessons. Well, so here's the thing: like, um, I there's two things. One is. Uh, it was a very small hedge fund. So like I was very close to everything. Whereas if I was working at, you know, Bridgewater or wherever, and I was in a basement writing code all day, I would have not have been close to like, I would have not have been seeing the, the firm's P and L in real time and like freaking out about it. So, so, so that's, that's one thing I'll say. Um, the other thing is that some people really like, like the markets in that way. And, and so they probably would have enjoyed that. I'm not someone uh, like that. So uh, I didn't enjoy that aspect of it either. Um, so I would never recommend for someone to work at a hedge fund, but they do pay pretty well. So um, if if you want to get paid well and you like finance, then it might be a good choice. Interesting. Yeah. This message brought to you by the Hedge Fund Association of America. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I'll get them to sponsor uh, sponsor the, the podcast. We should get sponsored by Bloomberg. Let's do that. Um, do you know anyone at Bloomberg? Probably. Yeah, probably me too. Uh, but probably. Well, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Yeah, I've probably trash hedge funds. They don't care. Nope. They're not in the hedge fund business. Well, what else, Pete Potter? Uh, any talks coming up or anything you want to pitch? Um, yeah. Um, no, I don't actually have any talks coming up. Um, Good for I, you. I, uh, I kind of, a couple of years ago, I gave like eight talks in a year and I regret that. Um, uh, cause that was just a lot of work. I know. I have, of, I have a shit ton of talks coming up and I'm not, uh, I'm kind of, I'm not dreading the talks. I love giving talks, but I'm dreading writing all the talks. Yeah. Yeah. I like the talking part. Um, it's, yeah, it's the writing coming up with examples and like rehearsing it and, like making sure you're, you know, particularly if you do like a like a long tutorial. I've done a lot of tutorials at like mm-hmm. high data meetups and stuff, and that's just that's an incredible amount of work um, to get that working and get your kind of a uh, your 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 Jupiter stuff working and you know make sure Jupiter. Not to men- yeah, not to mention if you have people running live code and downloading AMIs and stuff like that in the tutorial. Yeah, and then someone's always going to be using Windows, and that's their fault. And you know, it's like and it's trying to support it. Yeah, yeah, Joel, you don't like Jupiter. You give that very controversial mm-hmm. talk where you like say notebooks were like the worst thing since like the Communist Party or something. That's not exactly um, what I said, but but I I, <laughs> I I did give that talk, and it's funny that uh, so um, in the past six months I've gone to two academic uh, like AI conferences. One was uh, EMNLP, which was a, a a big academic NLP conference in Brussels, and then I also went to Triple AI, um, which is a big AI conference in, in Hawaii, um, and uh, it was surprising to me how many people came up to me and they're like, "You're the notebooks guy." <laughs> 
Yeah, it's like my well, it's like my new it's my new source of fame. For a while, before that, it was the Fizzbuzz. People would be like, "You're the Fizzbuzz guy," and then before that, it was the "You're the Data Science from Scratch" guy. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, I, I, do I need remember. I need to come up with something even more controversial to top it. Uh, I quite liked well, your I quite liked your visualization thing in like pure script or something. Oh, I, I used script? to I used to do a lot of pure script like when I was between jobs. I haven't touched it in a couple years, but um, yeah, I haven't touched pure script. In, I love pure script. Like it's it, in concept, it's it's such a genius idea. It's it's basically uh, like Haskell, but even better. And it compiles down to JavaScript, and you write your functional for. Oh, it's it's oh. it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful language. Um, and actually, I was at a was at a functional programming conference a number of months ago, and I sat next to Phil Freeman, uh, who's the guy who invented PureScript, uh, at dinner, and I I told him that I, I was I was a huge fan, so that was exciting. So, so why would you use PureScript and not TypeScript, right? So I've been writing some TypeScript and React Native lately. Um, so I haven't used TypeScript, but the reason is that um, you want to write. Um, you want to write using kind of the the Haskell like paradigm. Um, you know, you want yeah. to use th their abstractions, monads, and implicative functors, and things like that. Um, and, and you want to work in in that space. Um, I've actually been doing a lot of React recently, but I haven't used TypeScript with it yet, so just because I haven't figured out. Um, I find JavaScript tooling somewhat forbidding. Like I I find it easy to write JavaScript, but all the tooling I just I struggle with a lot. Um, because it's alien to me. So like the, I built something uh, this week and what I did, because this is like the the cheapest way to build things and it's what I always do, is I basically make a single HTML file um, and in that HTML file, I load the scripts, all the React stuff from a CDN and then I do a script tag and I write my entire app inside the script tag. And I do that because um, then I don't have to worry about NPM or Yarn or node modules or shit like that that I always screw up, so. No, you should just learn Yarn, man. Like, yeah, I've learned Yarn. If I can learn Yarn, you can learn Yarn. I could. The thing is that writing React is probably, like, I'd say it's 10 to 15% of my job. And so because it's really about 10 to 15% of my job, it's hard for me to justify, like, getting really deep into that world, even though I probably should, because it would make that, that 10 to 15%. It's like a JavaScript package manager and build system and blah, so blah, blah. It's not, not the Hadoop yarn? No, it's not the yeah. Hadoop yarn. Um, Why would they name it the same thing? I don't know. Uh, people are really bad at naming things. Naming things is one of the what, hard <laughs> things in computer science, right? Um, yeah. The, the other thing is that I really, uh, I, I really like writing React, and so that sort of lessened my motivation to try and work in PureScript, which was very alpha level when i was playing with it so um i, I yeah. actually i find writing react pretty fun so yeah it is it's a it's a nice language and uh it's quite impressive what you can do like in like mobile apps and web apps these days like you can do everything pretty much serverless backends you don't really need to write backend code anymore everything's in kind of in oh the here's client. a question for you here's Go a on. question for you guys if if you're going to make an app, would you and you want it to be web, you know, web desktop and mobile? Would you would you just write it in React or would you go to React Native also? Would you would you write it twice or? What, I thought the what, idea of React Native is that basically you can share the code. Is that not right? It's not exactly right. That's not. You, you, you can do React Native in the web. There is a React Native in the web thing. 
Okay, okay. Um, yeah, right. So the big fundamental difference, I can't believe I talk about React on the podcast, but the big fundamental difference between React Native and React is the DOM, right? So with React Native, you don't have a DOM, you don't have a DOM, so okay. they have to come up with other things around that. So there's all these weird abstractions, but there is React Native for the web. I've seen some people blog about it. And I think so that would like, make it really like easy. Web. So I like I like web. I like the I like the web. Is it oak? Oh, does does an app written with React work fine on mobile browsers generally? I think it does as long as you make it yeah. responsive. But that yeah. so whether you use React or not React, like you have to you have to make your app responsive. So yeah, okay, all right. And that's cool. a, yeah. that's a skill that I don't have. Thank you. Yeah, that's where like a lot of the challenges are, right? Making things work on different screen sizes and stuff like this. Yeah. Um, yeah, at the moment I'm building a mobile app and like yeah, I'm just I just picked React Native because I didn't want to like write Android and Swift. Right. Uh, yeah. And I didn't you know, I didn't want like to eventually like like deal with contractors in both languages or whatever, like because that's yeah. like the only yeah. way to do it. And uh when I worked at Google they they made everybody go through the basically Android boot camp where you have to write an app using Java and stuff and it sucked. But um, it's miserable. All right. Andrew, you said you had time constraints. How are you doing on that? I am doing fine. I do have to wrap it up at some point, but um, I, that, that actually moved. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And the, well, we are, I mean, we are coming up on an hour anyway, which is usually yep, when we, is. we wrap up. Yeah. So um, yeah. anything else you want to uh, promote, pitch, sell, rant about, tell, tell us that we're wrong about, ask us? Ask us, yeah, that's another one. Yeah. Um, what uh, you, uh, someone earlier on said, like the tooling had changed a lot in data science. What are you like most excited about at the moment? The thing that I want to see that I haven't seen yet uh, is being able to keep track of the input data and the the parameters that I was using in models. So, you know, if you have a team working on a problem, a lot of times they'll iterate, you know, dozens of times over the week or the weeks that they're working on something. And they'll they'll tweak parameters in in functions or they'll, you know, change change what a function does. And so they get really out of whack and lose track of where they are. Um, and they can't, it, it's hard for, for teams to keep their work organized. Uh, so what I would like to see, and I, I, I don't know who's going to build it for me, but uh, I'd like to see something that does simple tagging of the state that you had your, your code at and the data that you were, you were running, uh, you were training with uh, at the same time. So I don't know what it looks like. I don't know how to make it simple, but it's something that I've seen teams struggle with over and over and over. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you two and a half things that I'm excited about. Uh, Go on. Yep. One is PyTorch. I love PyTorch. I think PyTorch is is fantastic. Um, Py, Py, PyTorch is indeed awesome. Yeah, it's a. Um, and thing. you know, the, this is, this is me talking my book because you know my job is to work on Allen NLP, and Allen NLP is built on top of PyTorch. But I, re I really uh, Allen NLP is also awesome, but it's 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 niche. It's designed for NLP researchers, which is not most yeah. people. Um, I love, but I love PyTorch. I think PyTorch is is fantastic. Um, so that's one thing I'm excited about. Um, the second thing I'm, I'm excited about is is less of a tool, um, but more sort of my usual like what what bullshit is Joel on about this week? Um, well, this week. And, you know, most weeks I'm on about um, 
forcing kind of software engineering best practices onto data scientists. But uh, well, last week I was on to forcing them. This week I'm on to selling them. Um, mm-hmm. And basically, how, their incentives. How, yeah. how can I convince them that their lives will be a lot better if they do these things that I say? Um, I like that too. Um, and the third half one um, is I can't tell you because it is still in stealth mode, um, but it's uh, better than Jupiter. Uh, and when I can t- when I when I can talk about it, I'll talk about it. I can't talk about it today, but that's a that's a that's a teaser. Um, I'll probably be able to talk about it in a couple of months. Um, uh, cool. And it's not it's not something I'm building, but it's something that I'm uh, working helping out a little bit with. You can um, tell us. Um, I can, but I don't know if I'm allowed to. So um, I, gotcha. okay. I can t- I can tell you offline, but I can't put it on the podcast until. Alrighty. But but you know maybe when it comes out, I'll I'll make them sponsor the podcast. Um, Perfect. Okay. Cool. I look forward to to that. Um, cool. And Potter, next time you're in Seattle, come look us up. Yeah, I will. Um, yeah. Uh, I've never been to Seattle. Um, so next time, we'll we'll, we'll, time. we'll take we'll take you out and do all sorts of American things. We, we can go to the gun range, and we can go. Um, we can go to the Museum of Flight down here in Boeing. Yeah, we can eat uh, Seattle food, oysters. <laughs> What, what is Seattle? We can, go, we can go. We can go see many Amazonians running around Seattle. Sure. Cool. And thanks uh, for thanks for joining. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a pleasure you. too. Yeah. Thanks. Have a great day, guys. Yeah. Hopefully, Zencaster doesn't fuck this one up. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you added this part out. Joel here, just with your usual reminder that if you want to find the podcast online, you can find it at adversariallearning.com like to follow us on twitter that's adversarial underscore l uh on twitter and if you'd like to drop us a note that's adversarial.learning.podcast at gmail.com and that's how you can get in touch with us make sure to tell your friends write a review uh, whatever it is that people do about podcasts that they like because hopefully you like this one and we will see you next time God save the queen.